Welcome to The Source, investments podcast covering trends and insights in institutional investing, and where we get to sit down with industry experts and investment experts to get their takes on those trends. My name is Rich Donellen, part of the investment strategy team and host of this podcast. In today's episode, we're joined by two members of the Regnan team, which is part of the Pendle Group, along with J.O. Hambro Capital Management. Joining us, we have Tim Crockford, head of their recently launched Global Equity Impact Solutions Strategy, and we're also joined by Sushila Perez de Costa, head of advisory at Regnan. Their colleague Luke Bridges reached out after hearing another podcast we did around ESG and wanted to share what the Regnan team is doing with their new global impact strategy and what they're hearing from clients about demand for ESG, SRI, and impact investing. Sushila so co-authored a paper called Active Ownership 2.0 along with the UNPRI, who we've also done a podcast with. We get her take on how investors can directly influence companies, markets, and economies, and ultimately society and the environment as a whole. We then talk to Tim about how they translate those principles into the companies that they invest in. If you've listened in the past, you know ESG has been a big focus of these conversations, and it's something we get asked about all the time. We recently released a new questionnaire to make sure consultants and investors have all the data that they need when evaluating a manager's ESG approach. If you have any questions on how to populate that information, or if you want to find out how you can access that information on a manager, reach out to us at solutions at investment.com. With that, let's jump into our conversation with Tim and Sushila. Uh, so thank you both for joining us today. I'm excited to hear your perspectives on impact investing and about the strategy you recently launched. Um, but before we get into that, can you both provide us uh, with a little bit of background about you and your roles? Maybe, uh, Sushila, if we can start with you. Sure. Um, well, I'm the head of advisory and Regnan evolved from a really unique idea that an institutional investor had. So it was a big pension scheme uh, way back in about 2001, where they realized that the way that they thought about investing, which was very focused on owning stocks and owning individual assets through the markets, wasn't really taking care of their total portfolio because the way that the markets operated optimised for the short term, and actually they were a really long-term investor and they weren't only invested in stocks, they were invested in the economy. Um, so our role has sort of evolved from that. Originally, we began trying to protect the value of those underlying assets, so the individual companies, engaging companies based on what we thought would support their longer term thinking. We eventually introduced a research capability to support that and, and that grew into quite a, an ESG capability. And because we'd been doing it for so long, we increasingly started getting approached by foundations, by asset owners, by a lot of the big investors around asking how should they think about responsible investment as mm -hmm. really large, really diversified investors. Interesting. And Tim, how about yourself? Yeah, so hi, I'm, I'm Tim Crockford, the, uh, the head of the new uh, Regnan Global Equity Impact Solutions team. Uh, we've just come on board and joined Regnan earlier this year in 2020. Um, before joining Regnan, um, myself and the, the entire team who, who joined with me uh, used to work at Federated Hermes, uh, where we used to ran, run the, uh, the Federated Hermes Impact Opportunities Fund, uh, which we kind of designed ourselves and, uh, and launched back in 2017. And at the time, that was very much seen as a, uh, you know, an, an attempt to try and bring a genuine 
impact investing products to the public equity space. Uh, you know, I think we, we were very sort of early in the game in terms of considering how uh, impact could be done in, a, in, a, in, a, in an equity mandate, in a, in a public equity mandate. Um, and so the whole plan, the whole point of, of existence of, of the team was to try and figure out how we would do this in a genuine way and really try and democratize impact investing uh, to make it available to, uh, to a, a broad investor group. Uh, of course, equities being a, a very easy asset class to get into. So I do want to come back to that, uh, the new strategy, but Sushila, maybe if we can uh, start with you. So you co-authored a paper with UNPRI titled Active Ownership 2.0. Um, we actually did one of our early episodes with Chris Fowle from UNPRI uh, based here in the US. Um, but that paper centers around three pillars, which are outcomes, common goals, and collaborative actions. Can you talk a little bit more about what Active Ownership 2.0 is? Yeah, it's probably important to start with what Active Ownership 2.0 is not. And so as an organization that um, was founded, as, as I described, on this idea that pension funds are really long-term and very widely diversified, they essentially have this stake in the whole economy. And that was the original um, insight into the founding of the Principles for Responsible Investment and into its uh, principle two, active ownership. Yet when we actually look at what goes on under the rubric of active ownership, a majority of what takes place there is actually not capable of addressing many of the challenges that, that um, universal ownership needs to be addressed. So for instance, it's, it's very easy for investors to think primarily when they're undertaking engagement, meeting with companies, writing letters and voting. It's very easy for them to think primarily about the individual company and what creates performance in that individual company. So if you take an example like climate change, that's often focused on how climate change will affect the company. What gets missed in all of that, when you add it all up, hundreds of investors um, having hundreds of conversations with companies about how the company will be affected, is that outward looking perspective that would actually protect the whole system against the worst excesses of climate change. So the, uh, the insight that drove Active Ownership 2.0 was actually that investors needed to reorient Active Ownership to focus on things that weren't specific to the individual companies that they were focused on, that, that addressed those common goals, that focused on outcomes rather than um, govern, what we would call governance measures. So very often it's easier to talk about disclosure rather than talk about what a company's really doing. And ultimately recognizing that collaboration was a necessary feature of that bigger picture perspective. You can't really achieve the things that need to be achieved without working with other investors towards that. So they were the three pillars that came through, outcomes, common goals and collaboration. And they are really addressed at a, to that system protection that is so necessary for the markets to operate effectively. And I do want to come back to that too, as it relates to COVID and everything that's happened this year. Um, so you also serve as the chair of responsible, uh, the Responsible Investment Association uh, Australasia. Um, we talk a lot with uh, our European uh, 
uh, clients uh, about the differences between uh, maybe the U.S. and Europe as it relates to ESG and how far along that maturity curve we are here in the U.S. We don't talk a lot about that in Australia. What are some of the themes top of mind with Australian investors as it relates to ESG, SRI, and impact investing? One of the really unique things about the Australian market um, was that it was driven by this kind of economic um, understanding of what the largest and longest term pension funds needed. And that meant that quite unlike Europe and, and quite a lot, of, quite unlike some of those um, much more faith-based, um, ethically driven uh, investment uh, organisations in the United States, it had a very, very strong focus on ESG integration. So that analytical application to environmental, social and governance issues and, and understanding the extent and the means by which they would impact and you know, usually impair corporate performance long term, that was a really strong focus. And so what that means when it comes to impact investing is it's more of a blank canvas. It's, there's not a muddying in Australia to the same degree that we see elsewhere of what will create returns and what will have an impact in the world. And so we get um, a much more um, distinct and in my view, much more disciplined approach to impact as a result. That's interesting. Uh, so Tim, jumping over to you quickly, you and your team recently launched uh, your new global impact strategy. Um, can you tell us about that investment approach um, and how that's going so far? Sure. Um, so as I said, the plan was really to sort of try and build a public equity strategy that was built on you know, the core tenets of what impact investing in the, in the private investment world is and the private asset world is. Uh, you know, so we, we basically tried to put something together whereby we took the, the, this view of investing with the intention to create an additional measurable impact uh, and tried to understand how we could apply that in a public equity context. So what we've kind of built over here is a framework whereby we basically look first and foremost for solutions, for products and services which are capable of driving a positive impact. So the interestingly tying very much into what Sheila talked about, uh, you know, in terms of being systems thinkers, we start off thinking about the system before we start thinking about the companies. Uh, we start off thinking about, you know, if we have a problem to solve, and that problem is climate change, if we need to reduce emissions, for example, um, what are the best ways of doing that as they relate to the application of public transport? What are the best ways of doing that as they, replay, uh, as they relate to agriculture? Um, and then we start comparing and I'm trying to understand which of these solutions relate uh, better and which has the best chance of driving a positive outcome. Uh, and therefore, by definition, which of these solutions has the best chance of being a financial success? And that is basically what the strategy revolves on. It revolves around companies that have at the center of their business a mission because they sell a product or a service to solve either an environmental challenge or a social challenge. Uh, and as a result of this increasing need for these solutions, that drives the revenue 
or the market size first and foremost for this solution that drives the revenue for the company and therefore that drives the profit and earnings growth for these businesses. So what we basically try to do by finding companies who have a unique innovative solution or technology for a particular environmental or social challenge, we've basically tried to align this concept of you know, creating the largest positive impact and creating the largest return, financial return, such that if you if you had to plot the two on on an x and y axis, you could you know, ideally be able to draw a forty five degree line, uh, you know, between the two. Uh, and so that's basically how how the strategy works. And uh, you know, I won't go into the details of the process and and all of the fun stuff, but it really is based around building a framework to really identify before we even look at the companies which solutions are best placed to solve these sort of challenges. Hence the name of the strategy. So I guess through that process, you created a universe of, I think it was 2,200 companies and growing, uh, and you talk about corporate engagement. So what does that actually look like in practice with these companies, I, maybe beforehand or once an investment is made and how willing and able, I guess, are the management teams of these companies able to like get on board with that level of engagement that you're expecting? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, we don't engage with all 2,200 of those uh, companies that you know just would not be feasible, and it, there'd be no no point in us doing that because mm-hmm. you know through the process we have, we uh, you know once we've at- assembled that list, and as you say, that's a growing list. Um, you know, we have a, a very quick filter that we apply called our impact assessment uh, to understand which of these companies are true impact leaders uh, and which of these companies really has a innovative solution at the center of their business. Um, you know, this isn't about global conglomerates. This isn't about sort of mega cap companies who have, you know, their, their business in many different areas that this is about focused smaller businesses. Um, so it's, it's, it's relatively easier to figure out which one of those companies might make a, a decent investment idea to take through our investment process. Of course, because they are smaller companies and because their business is centered around a product or a service, which plays into this mission of solving an environmental or social challenge. These companies are naturally more receptive towards engaging with investors who are keen to invest in them. They want, first of all, to hear what people like us want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, they want us to go and tell the story. You know, we have, uh, uh, you know, we we, we had a, a meeting with a, a U.S. company today, and you know, they're at the end of the meeting, they said to us, like, you know, what can we do? Um, you know, what are you doing? What are you talking to to invest your investors about when you talk about us? And I think you know, they're keen for more and more people to know that these businesses are focused on solving these sustainability challenges that we face. So I think ultimately, the sort of companies that we're focused on taking down the investment process and ultimately making their way into the portfolio are going to be companies with management teams and with cultures who want to engage with investors, want to build a shareholder base of long-term uh, investors, uh, you know, and they want to listen to what they have to say. So it's, it's not really been a challenge at all so far. And in fact, we've often found that it's a two-way thing. And as I said, we'll often get companies, once they know us, once they understand what we're looking at, uh, coming to us to ask, you know, sometimes for our help in, in terms of for example, talking about what disclosures they uh, we would want to see in their sustainability report, for example. So when you're, I guess, how has, have your interactions with investors change over time as impact investing has become more mainstream? Maybe they're more knowledgeable. Is there less upfront education and more just jumping right into it? How has that changed 
as you've been working with investors over the past few years? Yeah, so it, it's interesting because, you know, as you sort of alluded to um, with the question you asked Ashila earlier on, I think, you know, you've, you've found in different markets around the world that there's, you know, obviously different markets are in different different levels of knowledge, different levels of understanding, and of course, different levels of desire and demand to actually get, uh, you know, to invest money in these areas. And, uh, you know, I think what's been fascinating, having spent the last decade of my career in this space, first with, you know, within ESG integration, and then more recently with, with impact investing, um, it's been fascinating watching the development of different markets. And typically what you find is, you know, at, at the early stages of, of their understanding of the broader responsible investment spectrum, you'll find that people just conflate everything into one, you know, one group of, of, of products. And I think, you know, that is where most people who might have had, a, you know, a skeptical or even cynical bias towards uh, this area will just walk away without learning anymore. But what you find is when markets have started to gain, gain critical mass and the end investor has started to really demand, you know, this product, of course, those same uh, fund selectors have had to go back to the drawing board and, and, and get, you know, deep into the, uh, the workings of, uh, of this responsible investment spectrum and understand what differentiates ESG from SRI and what differentiates impact investing from ESG integration. So I think it's been fascinating because you see this very sort of steep ramp in the learning curve as that process starts. And, you know, we've seen it in countries like Switzerland, for example, which in a very short space of time went from being, you know, not, not caring that much or a very small subset of the market caring about it to, you know, this being mainstream and everyone, you know, knowing their, uh, you know, their ESGs from their SRIs, if you'll excuse the <laughs> alphabet soup. Um, so, so I think it's, what we do see is that I think that the biggest hurdle people have to get over and this is something we touched on earlier on and something you know, Sushila also mentioned is this, this perception that there is a split and that there is a differentiation between financial motive and, and uh, impact or, or you know, ESG motive. When it's done properly, the two are not just aligned, but should be thought of one and the same thing and, and inter, interdependent. And you know, one of our big frustrations that I'm always moaning about is that you, know, you get often in, in larger asset managers, you find an investment team, and then you find an ESG analysis team. You know, and, and I'm thinking, okay, great, the, I, I get it. Maybe the, the 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 managers don't yet have the, the the knowledge to do that. But ultimately, if they are the ones making the decision, and you are saying to your clients that this is something which affects the alpha generation of your fund, surely the people making the stock decisions should be doing this analysis. Um, you know, so I think I think that that's changing in, in in the markets that are getting further down that learning curve. And uh, you know, I think here in Europe, obviously, it's it's been somewhat ahead of probably most of the world. Um, I think Australia has definitely been ahead, and and it's I, I think Sushila's perspective is very interesting because I think that's ultimately where you need to get to, where there is this you know this this perception is eradicated that it is one and the other. Um, you know, they are you know one and the same thing really. I'd say a majority of the things we're asked about in the content we put out is ESG or impact in investing related today. So Sheila, I see you smiling and nodding a lot. I'm interested to get your perspective as well. It's how your interactions with clients have changed and maybe what they're coming to you to understand what their options are. It's really interesting because what Tim says is exactly right, that the, the newer comers to the field are 
um, are the ones who tend to assume that ESG integration and impact are all one and the same things. And I think that comes from a perspective of partly wishful thinking, but also partly because it's very convenient for a lot of the providers in the space to, to um, you know, market their products and services as though that really is the same thing. We're what we're starting to see though is some sophisticated pushback and not just from investors, but also some from some of the commentators and providers in the space. It was quite an interesting uh, debate last year uh, was it only last year? Maybe this year? Time has kind yeah. of collapsed in 2020. But um, there was an interesting debate that centred in Europe um, about whether or not investing in, uh, in in a way that limited the carbon emissions emitted by the stocks in your portfolio helped climate change. And what we saw was one of the, uh, the commentators in the field, a group called the Two Degree Investing Initiative, really pushed back on that idea rightly. Um, because adjusting a portfolio from what is otherwise a benchmark portfolio isn't necessarily going to change the outcomes in the world. And so the problem is often that newer comers to the field are starting from the position that they need to retrofit ESG or responsible investment into what they do anyway. And that retrofitting does result in this really demarcated split. So either you're managing risk through ESG integration or you're trying to have an impact in the world, and you might do that in, you know, by selecting impact invest investments. What you're not doing is finding a way to genuinely make the investment um, outcome a result of that impact case, which is is fairly unique, I think, to to teams like Tim's. So, maybe wrapping up with a question we have to ask in every podcast we do this year: it's just the impact of of COVID nineteen, and maybe some of the other. Uh, kind of social changes we've seen around the world. What do you think the impact will be to investors' demand for uh, for ESG? Um, we we did a, a podcast a couple weeks ago with uh, Alex Hoy from Callan, who put together their uh, annual ESG survey and saw a big group of investors said it will actually uh, increase our focus on ESG after what we saw this year. And I think, Sushila... You talked in a webinar I watched about, I think it was invisible assets, things like governments or healthcare systems or economies that we just expect to work that maybe have been stressed a little bit this year. How do you think everything we've seen this year will impact investor demand for making an impact going forward? Well, the nice thing, Rich, is that we don't actually need to speculate. We've seen an explosion in demand for responsible investment. And certainly in the Australian context, it predates COVID. Um, we had a very, very devastating uh, bushfire season last summer. So that's last January, December in, in the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and during those months, we saw consumer inquiries for responsible investment at the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, which I chair, um, double. And that, that increase has continued. COVID has resulted in it spiking. I think what COVID does is making make a lot of that invisible infrastructure visible. And you mentioned things that are community assets, things like um, healthcare, like functioning governments, all of those things. But that applies also within companies where individual companies whom we talk to in our engagement, we're asking about how their boards have um, reconsidered their role in society given the degree to which they've had to come to the taxpayer for support, for instance, or given the way that they have 
um, actually extended generosity beyond what would be kind of economically rational to employees in order to keep a community going and to keep that economy ticking. So there's a realisation there that um, that interdependency is absolutely economically relevant and it's relevant to market returns. And, and I really hope that that realisation doesn't disappear as soon as the cycle turns. Tim, you're nodding in agreement. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think we... <laughs> I mean, I, I was in a slightly different position, uh, interestingly, because, you know, when I when I left my previous uh, employer at the end of last year and then saw what unfolded in the first quarter of this year, uh, I was thinking to myself, my market timing is pretty good. Uh, but of course, you know, what we saw over the course of the, this year and, and, you know, we've come back now and launched this new strategy and it's been, you know, it's been overwhelming. I mean, the you know, the, there's been, you sort of see this, you know how it is when you you're you're not engrossed in something all the time. You you sort of leave it alone, and then you come back to it. You uh, you can really notice if something has changed, and I think that's what we've seen in in our world in terms of uh, in terms of investor demand. And I think you know one of the things we've kind of alluded to as well uh, over the course of this chat is that it, a lot of the demand was centered in perhaps one or two regions. You know, uh, this time last year, uh, that's changed. You know, now this is something which is. Uh, you know, to, to use Sushila's term, it's exploded and it's exploded on a worldwide basis. So, um, you know, we, we only see this increasing. I think I think now is really, though, the time for uh, impact investors and, and uh, you know, fund managers running ESG integrated strategies, really ESG integrated strategies to really show their mettle, though, because, you know, of course, uh, going into a into a different market, going into a, a more growthy uh, economy, uh, you know, what perhaps has worked in the past might not work in the future. So I think it's really time now for, you know, the fund managers uh, who are in this space to show that they uh, they can build all weather strategies, not just uh, something which is sort of crisis proof. Um, so it's it, it's uh, it's going to be an exciting time, I think, for the industry. And, and just to add, uh, add, just to add to that, one of the things that we've seen is a growing recognition that it's not just about what's inside the portfolio. And so those fund managers that are really making a contribution in terms of their influence on companies, um, the funds management organisations that are using their influence wisely and, and in the same um, vein as the kinds of solutions that we talked about, they're the, they're the ones that are really receiving attention because there's a growing recognition that there can be quite a disconnect um, between what a portfolio is doing and the broader influence that a fund manager has, especially some of the largest fund managers. That's a really important insight too when we're thinking about things like those invisible infrastructure and the profitability of solutions going forward. Well, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I love the fact that we have a totally global perspective here. We've got faces on the screen from all over the world. We managed to work it out so I didn't have to be awake at 3 a.m. So that was uh, great for me as well. Um, but I want to thank you both for joining us. We'd love to have you on again. Um, we'll make sure to link to your website and your uh, your paper, um, Active Ownership 2.0 as well, so people can check that out, Sushila. Um, but thanks again, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Rich. I really enjoyed hearing from them because it was a chance to see how all of the principles that we talk about and the things that we see in the data actually play out in a manager's process when evaluating companies and how investors look to make an impact in society. The investment database now has more than 790 ESG-focused strategies reporting data, and AUM in the universe crossed $400 billion for the first time ever last quarter. 
For information on how to research these strategies or to make sure your fund is included and available to over a thousand consultants and investors across the globe, contact us at solutions at investment.com. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you soon.